This podcast is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world. It is now a leading supplier across the Americas. It's got more than three gigawatts shipped in just the last two years, and shipments are growing fast. And they are building the backbones of some of the most innovative solar projects in the world, from floating PV projects to big projects for tech companies like Apple. Find out more about SunGrow's solar and storage products at sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Thanks for being here. Welcome. This week, our pre-Thanksgiving intellectual feast. It's a four-course meal, as usual. For the hors d'oeuvres, we're serving up something new, a roundup of the new entrants into the presidential race and how they stack up on environmental issues. For the side dishes, we're going to reheat some leftovers. We'll look at the climate gate debacle 10 years later. And for the main course, what people or companies will we choose as the top turkeys of the year? We'll end with a little aperitif, our free electrons. The table is set for three. In Washington, D.C. is Catherine Hamilton, chair of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. Hi, you're making me hungry for Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) In Bethesda, Maryland is Jigger Shah, the president of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. Hey, So why don't we start with where people usually start at the dinner table over Thanksgiving, politics. Uh, That's sure to make for an interesting conversation. So we're going to take a look at the shifting presidential field. We have a few new entrants or potential entrants. All of them have substantial records on energy and climate. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick is getting in the race officially. He oversaw some pretty major clean energy initiatives while serving two terms. So we'll look at his record. Former New York City governor and billionaire Michael Bloomberg is indicating he's going to jump in the race. Uh, Still not sure yet. He's pledged millions to shut down coal plants and he's helped organize local policy opposition to Trump. So we'll, we'll talk about Bloomberg as well. And one of the candidates is not so new. Billionaire climate advocate Tom Steyer entered the race a few months ago, but that was well after the field had formed. So what are these new entrants signal? The primary is taking a distinct sharp turn to the left. The liberal base is really skeptical of these entrants, partially because of Steyer and Bloomberg's billionaire status, and partly because Deval Patrick is a more moderate candidate who also worked in finance and worked for an oil company. But all of them have pretty interesting records on the issues we discuss here. So let's look at how it'll shake out in the race. Catherine, to start... Give us the 60-second roundup of each candidate's position on climate and energy. Yeah, sure. So Tom Steyer, who made his fortune at Farrell & Capital Management Hedge Fund, and he spent a lot of money uh, on coal at the time, in about 2012 pivoted and has spent just millions and millions of dollars on ballot initiatives in states, on messaging for climate, and is really, that is his top issue, uh, is climate change. Um, Bloomberg was gave $100 million to the Sierra Club Beyond Coal campaign, uh, and causing almost 300 coal plants to either shut down or put on the books to retire. Uh, he is also all in. And remember, there was a bit of a shift to the uh, you know bridge to natural gas, but that's that you know he's done with that, and he's really all in on clean energy. And then Deval Patrick was the governor of Massachusetts and did a ton of stuff when he was the governor, um, and is considered one of the best governors 
actors ever on clean energy other than, say, Jerry Brown and Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was really right up there, you know, putting a statewide carbon cap on, getting all his agencies aligned on moving forward, strengthening the RPS and moving the market for distributed solar. So um, he is also all in on clean energy and climate change. So I don't think necessarily that their views are that different, although their approaches certainly are. Okay, to the politics of the race first, generally, like, why do we suddenly have a couple new entrants, potentially three new entrants? What does this tell us about the opening that they see in the race? Yeah, so, I mean, Steyer's been in for a long time advertising on TV about impeachment. So I think he's always been wanting to do this. I don't know that Bloomberg has fully committed to. I know he wants to put some money into it. Um, I think, and I think Deval Patrick has... You know, he's very close with President Obama. And I think maybe all of them in some way feel like climate change is not being discussed enough and that that they're nervous. They're really nervous. They don't see anybody out there in the race already who can do what they want to do. Jigger, does that argument ring true to you? Uh, it's different for different people, right? So Tom Steyer spent $47 million to get onto the debate stage since he launched his campaign. My sense is $47 million could probably flip every state legislature in the country. Um, and so like, the question really becomes, like, what is it that Steyer thinks he can do as president, right, that he can't do as a funder, right? And it's, it's one of those things where it, you know, I actually have gotten to know Tom Steyer personally over the years and think very highly of him. But I have to say his run for president really brought him down like 10 notches in my book because it's this level of sort of just ego that I hadn't seen there before. Well, since you're talking about it, let's discuss the billionaires first. There's a lot of skepticism and cynicism about having two billionaires in the race. So if energy and climate is so important for people like Steyer and Bloomberg, Catherine, should they be spending their money on a presidential campaign? I mean, it's, it sounds like they could probably do a lot more with their money in local races uh, in localities around the country. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't think they should, although anybody's welcome to jump in that they that wants to. I just don't see what their unique qualifications are to lead the country. And the fact that when people look at a field of candidates and say, I can do better, they sure as heck better have a really good argument of how they can do better than anybody else at running the country and at winning. So, yeah, I it's very frustrating to see people just decide I'm frustrated, so I'm going to do better. And man, you better be able to make a case for it. Yeah. And I would say that to me, Steyer is worse than Bloomberg, right? Because Steyer didn't even like try to become the mayor of San Francisco or something else first to really understand what it was like to give back in public service. He's, you know, basically saying, I'm just going to go for the big prize because that's what my ego is telling me to do. Whereas at least Bloomberg tried, you know, to run a city. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, I think people think he did a decent job in, as a mayor of New York City. Clearly, I think stop and frisk was a big challenge for him. And frankly, I think that the dust up around stop and frisk has been so high that he may never enter the race. Right? Remember, all he's done is file to run for president in Alabama because it had an early deadline and maybe New Hampshire. But he hasn't actually officially decided to run. So, Jigger, does anybody ever tell Tom Steyer no when he comes up with an idea? Does anybody say no, that is not a good idea? 
Or is he just surrounded by people who tell him yes all the time? Well, in fact, his entire team told him no around the impeachment thing, right? So basically, he had an entire group that was building grassroots organizations and and an impeachment, you know, sort of mailing list, as you know. And that entire team basically left him when he ran for president and he replaced him with a new team because they said, the work that we were doing here was so good. Why would you throw it all away by running for president? Let's talk about Deval Patrick. He's a really interesting case in this race. He's getting criticized because he's a moderate. He has ties to finance. There are already moderates like him in the race that are not gaining traction. So I think there's a lot of uh, questions about the viability of his candidacy. And then on the climate side, there have been some folks who've criticized him because he has refused to outright back the Green New Deal. He's he's kind of waffled on it and said, well, I, I like the idea behind it, but I'm not ready to commit to one specific plan. Uh, so I think that like a, the younger generation is already kind of skeptical of him as a moderate candidate. However, he has this really interesting and very robust record as a governor in Massachusetts over two terms. Catherine, remind us what that record is. You know, you said, which I think is accurate, that he has pretty much one of the the, the best records as a governor. He certainly, in my opinion, has the best or one of the best records of any of the candidates in this field. So what did he do? Yeah, so he strengthened their RPS. He put a carbon cap in the state. He got he organized all of the government entities, state and local, all toward the same goals, um, driving everybody forward together. He made them a leader on behind the meter solar. The the one limiting factor, and I'm sure Jigger can speak to this too, is that Massachusetts has a really old guard Democratic legislature that really dragged him down and didn't let him get done all the things he wanted to do. One person I talked to in Massachusetts reminded me that this guy was a progressive insurgent and ran this campaign against the Democratic establishment in Massachusetts and won as governor. So if you want to think of him as someone kind of coming in as an insurgent, that is the role that he played in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And there have been some pretty extraordinary developments under Deval Patrick's watch. Um, So the legislature passed this thing called the Green Communities Act, which set up this very important institution here in Massachusetts called the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center. And they have funded some really extraordinary pilot and commercial projects around microgrids. They supported the uh, Greentown Labs when, when it was just two or three employees. And now they've built out and they've you know, they must have over 100 companies in their incubator and accelerator. Uh, They are really doing so much to foster this spirit of clean tech innovation in Massachusetts. We had the fastest growing green jobs rate after the recession. And I think Massachusetts took top billing and, and green jobs growth for many years in a row. We saw this explosion in rooftop solar. We built out a wind turbine testing facility for offshore wind turbine blades, and that's still very much in use. Um, so there were a lot of really important achievements, and it thrust Massachusetts to the top of uh, the you know the clean tech growth game. And it was more about creating an ecosystem here in the state and attracting businesses and jobs 
rather than just saying, let's throw a bunch of incentives at solar, which they did, of course. Um, but it was less about just deployment and more about saying, how do we bring more startups into this space? How do we leverage the universities, the extraordinary number of universities we've got here in you know, the Boston area and throughout the state? Uh, and, and I thought that they did that pretty well considering many of the political hurdles. Well, the irony of the whole thing is that Deval Patrick invented the Green New Deal, right? And when you think about it, he's the one who championed making sure that everyone had universal health care in Massachusetts, right? He was the one who basically said this has to be a more broad-based uh, program that's not really just about, um, you know, technology, but also about, you know, like providing people the safety nets that they need to, be more successful in every aspect of their life, right? And and he's the one who today doesn't actually understand why the Green New Deal is so important to support. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh, I should say I got on this tangent here and I forgot to give some really important caveats. So I have a personal connection to the Patrick administration. Before I met my wife, my wife worked for the Patrick administration for a few years. Um and in fact, the Green Tech Media early on worked with the Patrick administration to develop this conference called Forum 2020. And so we were involved in some of their efforts. And also the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, which I mentioned, was one of the first investors in Green Tech Media. So there's a financial tie there. Uh, with that said, I don't have any personal connection to the administration or the Deval Patrick campaign. I certainly am not backing any specific candidate, but I should mention that I, I know a lot of what happened within the administration just because I have that personal connection. With that said, I think his record stands. And when you have a lot of these candidates who've developed ambitious plans, but haven't implemented nearly as much, I think that should make Patrick stand out in this field. My sense is that he won't stand out because it's really all about liberal posturing at this point. And, uh, you know, if you're not supporting the Green New Deal, you're just going to get a bunch of shit for it. Well, no, come on. I mean, he's not going to stand out because he decided to be Johnny come lately in November of 2019 after being a pundit for CBS for the last six to nine months, you know, commenting on everyone else's viability in the race. I mean, you know, uh, you're thinking about Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, others have been on the ground in Iowa for a year. Yeah, I don't know how he's going to make it up with the ground game, although he did it in Massachusetts, while that is a much smaller venue. He also is very close with President Ob Barack Obama. And Obama has been very careful to stay out of the race to this point. He has not endorsed anybody. And there's some thought, I guess, that... Um, you know, Patrick must have gotten in, in for some reason, and maybe that is the reason. Didn't Bill Clinton come in late to the race in, in the 92 election? I seem to recall that he came in like in, in, in October or something. Well, the dynamics of the Bill Clinton race were more interesting, right? Remember, when Bill Clinton came in the race, um, he was sort of a nobody that had a good speech at the Democratic National Convention, and everyone thought Mario Cuomo was going to just take the race. And when Mario Cuomo again didn't run, um, you know, Bill Clinton like sort of got some legs late in the in the cycle. Like he he actually didn't even do well in Iowa, if I remember correctly. I think he surged uh, in New Hampshire 
and then sort of came later in the race. Right, the comeback kid, I think they call them because of New Hampshire. And uh, th- I think that's what that's what Deval Patrick's banking on, right? I mean, as a bordering state to New Hampshire, he's banking on the name recognition in, in that state. Well, it's better than the Bloomberg strategy, right? Bloomberg is basically saying if he comes in, he'll skip the first four states because he thinks they're largely white states. And mostly what he's saying is he actually wants to wait for California and Super Tuesday because that's where his money would be the most valuable. He could just own the media markets. So, Catherine, does this make the race any more interesting generally or specifically from an energy climate perspective? Well, it totally depends on whether some of these folks are on the debate stage. I mean, Steyer was on the debate stage last night um, and they had a couple of minutes about climate and he got to talk for a little bit about it. But it didn't make it super interesting what he said. Um, I don't know. I there there's so many people in the race, and there's so there are several people that I think just have absolutely no business being there. Um, but of course, everybody has a right to if they want to. I'm obviously stressed out about this whole thing, and just want, I want to get behind somebody that everybody agrees on, and that we can really uh, move forward with smart climate policy. Yeah, Catherine, I feel like a lot of people are feeling that same sense of angst, which is why we have new candidates and people within the Democratic Party probably pushing these more moderate candidates to to get in. Yeah, I mean, I feel a lot of angst, but that doesn't mean I'm going to jump in and run for president. <laughs> you should. Maybe yeah. you should. Never. <laughs> Catherine for president. Uh. <laughs> A- Andrew Yang was made a successful bid off of podcasts, so maybe you can too. <laughs> the Energy Gang is brought to you by our sponsor, SunGrow. SunGrow has more than 82 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe in every corner of the globe. It's now expanding rapidly in the U.S. It's got uh, almost two gigawatts of projects booked this year alone. It's doing projects like this 27 megawatt uh, solar facility for the Navajo tribal utility. And the Navajo right now are shutting down a massive coal plant and solar is coming to fill in the gap. And there's also going to be, you know, net metering with that solar project that SunGrow is supporting that's going to go directly to members of the Navajo Nation. So they'll benefit. SunGrow is also working with big tech companies like Apple to develop uh, like 250 megawatt solar plant that will supply a lot of uh, Apple's needs and its headquarters. And so SunGrow is just working around the world on innovative projects like this for both PV and storage. Go find out more about SunGrow's inverters, which are the backbone of some of the most important solar and storage projects in the world at sungrowpower.com. Ten years ago this month, the climate gate hack took place, and it played a strong role in stoking partisan political conspiracies around climate change and ultimately derailing progress on a global climate deal. We've grown accustomed to trolls and hackers causing chaos in the political system, but back in 2009, when scientists at the University of East Anglia's Climate Research Unit had their emails hacked and dumped out in the public without context, it felt new and disorienting. It it clearly disoriented many journalists who covered the story as if there were some major cover-up in the scientific community. It sparked this uh, false equivalence debate over climate science. And to be fair, it did show a problem with the way scientists were communicating how they did their jobs. So today we're still dealing with the reverberations of that hack. And I want to talk about what those consequences were. Before I do, let me just give a like a 30-second brief on what happened. 
So if you remember just weeks before the 2009 Copenhagen Climate Summit, where we were supposed to get a landmark deal, this server at the University of East Anglia was hacked. And a bunch of private correspondence between climate scientists working with the research unit there were exposed, often without context. And I think the emails went back like 13 years. So there were tons of them. And this British conservative troll named James Dellingpole, kind of a tame precursor to people like Milo Yiannopoulos and and Mike Saranovich, first wrote about the story and pulled out all these quotes that seemed to indicate that scientists were fudging data. The most famous pull quote was from Michael Mann, who talked about, quote, hiding the decline in an email to a fellow scientist. Dellingpole and others claimed Mann was talking about global temperatures. In fact, they were talking about a decline in tree ring growth. And because the tree ring growth was used as a proxy for global temperatures, and it conflicted with actual recorded global temperature increases, they were suggesting leaving it out uh, of an important study. So every single claim by Dellingpole and other fringe climate bloggers were was debunked by man's very own Penn State, by the UN IPCC, by the American Meteorological Society, a bunch of other prominent research organizations as well. But the damage was done. There was a sense that climate scientists were covering up something major, and it cast this long shadow over the climate talks and still casts its shadow. So, Jigger, what was the fallout? Like, what was the immediate fallout and then the long-term fallout? So, you know, I, I still am not sure, frankly, what the fallout was. I remember being deeply involved in the Copenhagen process at the time, and I had just joined the Carbon War Room, and and I remember it all occurring, but the the broader challenge to the Copenhagen negotiations was that it was a shared sacrifice framework and the sort of poorer countries, right, India and China were saying, you know, you guys have to pay us to decarbonize. So I don't know that the ClimateGate scandal is what scuttled Copenhagen per se. The timing was terrible. I mean, it was all over the news. We were basically, it was giving oxygen to climate deniers who were saying, that the whole thing was a hoax and we didn't really need to have this meeting at all. And, and you know, I mean, Myra Nebel, who became sort of the head of the transition team for the Trump administration's uh, EPA, was, you know, front and center of this crisis. And so it certainly smeared a number of good people's names, which took a long time to repair. And in in the end, pretty much everyone ex- was exonerated for many wrongdoing. I actually think this is a really important point because... There is this assumption that ClimateGate played some direct influence on the failure of Copenhagen. And there were no climate deniers in the room in Copenhagen when they're hashing out this language. These are all very serious diplomats at this time. And they couldn't agree on language. They couldn't agree around this concept of shared sacrifice, as you said, said Jigger. And it just what they everyone thought it was going to be the right moment. They had had many climate summits leading up to 2009. And this was sort of the moment that they were going to agree on language and they just couldn't get it done. So that was more a diplomatic issue than anything. But it did create some real serious problems in the aftermath. And of course, in the aftermath of a failure like this, you need strong political will within countries and globally. And that political will started to fall apart, or at least it was chipped away at because all of a sudden people started questioning the truth and the veracity of climate science. And enough doubt was injected in the system that it started to derail 
politics around the world and more importantly in the United States. It, it, it really fueled many of the fringe climate deniers in this country, which directly influenced many of the organizations like Americans for Tax Reform and the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute that had a huge role in, in helping crush momentum for a climate bill um, in 2010. So there was a pretty direct influence after the failure of the Copenhagen conference. Well, and remember at that time, we were we were in this moment in time where climate change had bipartisan support. There were ads with Newt Gingrich and Nancy Pelosi sitting on a white sofa with their arms around each other saying how important climate change was to focus on. There was public acceptance, there was all this positive momentum. John McCain was talking very much about what to do about climate change. And this really really undermined it. And it was done of course in a really nefarious way, and I don't think they ever figured out who the hacker was, but all of these snippets that were taken they out of... didn't. Right. So all these snippets that were taken out of context made it look like what scientists do, which is appropriate. They question each other. They question hypotheses. They, they have to peer review things. They ask really important, critical questions about what they do, and that's what their whole job is, was called into question and provided all these talking points to the right wing to try to undermine all of the progress that was on on a bipartisan level getting done on climate. I went to Copenhagen uh, during those climate talks, and there was just a ton of confusion. And part of this, I talked to um, Peter Frumhoff, who is the chief climate scientist of the Union of Concerned Mm -hmm. Scientists. And he said, like, what the issue was that the media picked up on something that had some really easy talking points. And did all of this whataboutism, you know, I'll talk to this person and this person, even though, you know, the the person who is the scientist has 99% of the scientists behind him or her and the other person is the fringe. I'm going to talk to them both as if they're equal. So that was one thing you had mentioned, Stephen. But the other thing is that scientists had did not know how to communicate very well what their findings were. And in an odd way, what this did was really galvanize those climate scientists to begin to be much more forceful, speak out to the public, learn how to educate, learn how to advocate, and and give rise to folks like Catherine Hayhoe, who's an amazing communicator on climate. It is the time when I actually realized that the media was not actually an impartial adjudicator and was really looking for clicks. And you started realizing that early on that they really liked car accidents, right? Car accidents were good for newspaper sales and clicks and and likes. And they and they really weren't actually interested in trying to figure out the truth. I could imagine like when you think about what would come out of hacked emails out of a newspaper newsroom and figuring out what would go on the news story and which people's articles were shortened by 300 words to make room and what facts were omitted, etc. Like would would be the same level of scandal, right? I mean, these scientists, it turned out to be regular human beings. They weren't all Spock. And that's not a scandal. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think it's necessarily like impartiality. I think that it's just exploiting a very real flaw in the system, in the journalistic system. It's what we saw with Pizzagate. I mean, when you saw these DNC emails dumped, 
journalists just had to write about the fact that there was a hack. And even if they talked about that there were all these false stories and then conspiracy theories out there, that's all you need to sow enough doubt. And that's what happened here. Yes, you had a lot of television programs that featured the worst climate deniers debating scientists, couching this in a political discussion. There was some pretty abysmal reporting and contextualization. But I think even if journalists had done a better job, they just need to report on the fact that there's a whiff of scandal, the fact that there's some uncertainty, and that's all you need to sow enough doubt in people's minds. And I think that that's an important vulnerability, and it's a bigger question of how journalists cover this stuff, because it certainly is news when it happens, and there are some pretty fundamental questions about how you report on it. Going back, and I don't know exactly what the answer is either. Uh, Going back to your point, Catherine, I do think that there was this real awakening in the scientific community in the aftermath as well, that scientists hadn't really been thrust into the political arena like this before. And the discussion certainly had been a political one, but scientists were not caught in the middle. Uh, The BBC did this great documentary a few months back on the 10-year anniversary, and one of the main climate scientists said this was the moment that climate scientists knew they were in the political world, and they were completely unprepared for it. And so this caused this flourishing of of myth debunking. And um, there are people like John Cook at Skeptical Science, my former boss, Joe Rome at Think Progress, who understood the use of language and how to contextualize things, um, helped reframe the way scientists bust myths. Um, And as you said, people like Catherine Hayhoe came out and really helped put a human face on climate science. Uh, You have people like Kate Marvel at NASA, Gavin Schmidt at NASA, Jacqueline Gill, who's a paleoclimatologist, Jason Box, who is an ice expert who was um, featured on Years of Living Dangerously. They all came out and said, we need a new way of talking about the science. And I think that that has finally matured. And so that is a positive impact of what happened in the decade since ClimateGate. The scientists really took the reins. Yeah, and we also have a generational... I don't know if it's helped much. (laughs) Well, I also think we have a generational shift because we have people now who have grown up with climate impacts every single day affecting their lives. And I think that scientists are now able to communicate in a way that shows that it is actionable and that there's evidence that we need that action to occur. So there's a bit of a perfect storm, so to speak. I have to say, I don't think anything is better 10 years out. I mean, you know, the media still fall, fell for Donald Trump stuff. You know, we, we detain and break up more families today than we ever have at the border, and they just don't cover it anymore because they're numb to it. You had... You know, somebody basically say that he was directed by the president to do a quid pro quo yesterday on the Hill. And instead of everyone just feeling like, well, that's it, like Trump's going to resign, everyone's like, ah, you know, he's done worse. And so, like, we're in a stage right now where the media actually can't play a productive role around informing people, right? That in general, like, they've given up on that task altogether. Well, relative with the scope of the problem, I don't think things are much better. But I will say that there have been some significant improvements in the way that talk shows cover this issue. They're no longer featuring the same uh, fringe climate deniers that they once did, like Myron Ebel and and Mark Morano. 
um, or James Dellingpole. I think that they're starting to cover it with less political context and more scientific and social context, although that's a slow evolution. The the, the morning news shows still tend to focus on the, the political context. Uh, and then you have just a lot more like great documentaries on the science that humanize climate scientists. And of course, you have this incredible momentum within the scientific community and the activist community that is forcing things like the CNN climate debate. Um, we're still seeing other debates where they're not asking climate change questions at all. So there's a real problem there. But like we've seen improvements. I think they're material improvements. It's a pretty big change in you know the last five years. Obviously not at the scale of the problem, but important positive changes, I'll say. Also, what you're making the case for is an is a U.S. centric approach. So six years after Copenhagen, we got the Paris Accord. That was huge. That got everybody going in the right direction. Even though it was non-binding, everybody was on the same page. Now, the U.S. is the only one right now that's not aligned. And it's just the president and his political party that are not aligned. But I think a vast amount has changed. Public opinion has changed. The rest of the world is trying to move forward. Yes, we have some real problems in some sectors that we have to move forward on. But I see much more progress than we had back in Copenhagen. Well, let's break out the turkey now. For all you vegetarians out there, the tofurkey. The start of the holiday season is now. It's time for gratitude and reflection. It's also time to remember the insanity that we're all facing, the bad choices that now define our daily lives. As part of our Thanksgiving tradition, we are choosing our top turkeys of 2019. What person or company deserves to be called out as the turkey of the year? Is it a CEO who did something terrible? Is it a company that made a disastrous move? Who deserves to be mentioned and shunned at the table? (laughs) Catherine, uh, who are you bringing to our meal just to criticize in front of everyone? I am bringing Andrew Wheeler, the 15th administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. He was the number two guy under Scott Pruitt, whom we may uh, remember fondly from trying to buy a used mattress from the Trump Hotel. Um, (laughs) And then he was acting administrator uh, for a while. And then he was just confirmed March of this year. He was still lobbying a few months before he went into the EPA uh, for Bob Murray, the coal magnet. Um, He fought Obama consistently on all the regulations. And now that he's running EPA, he's rolling back regs, he's pushing out scientists, and he's losing the brain trust that is in and has been within EPA. It is and is showing us that it is far easier to break something than it is to put it back together. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing about Andrew Wheeler. He's actually competent. Uh, Scott Pruitt came in there and because of all the scandal that he drummed up himself with his behavior, he wasn't able to do, despite his, you know, legal background and and knowledge of how to dismantle the agency, he wasn't able to do what the president wanted him to do. And Andrew Wheeler is really good at what he's doing, which is unfortunate. Absolutely. This year alone, uh, rolling back the clean power plan, rolling back the clean water rules, rolling back methane rules, the vehicle efficiency standards, um, getting all mucked up on PFAS, which is this polyfluorocolyl substances, which are on basically all nonstick pans and water repellent clothing, stain resistance. It's just everywhere. Um, Those rules, loosening those up and using science and data in a way that it is not supposed to be used. Okay, well, we're putting Andrew Wheeler at the kids table. 
All right. Uh, oh, actually, the kids. <laughs> actually, the kids' table is way more fun. So I would actually rather put him. Yeah. Okay. I'd rather put him outside with a leaf blower. <laughs> Jigger, who are you bringing to our table uh, so that you can you can call out? Well, I wasn't quite sure whether I should pick a company or a person. So I picked Saudi Aramco um, as the turkey. Okay, we're going to have a lot of, a ta- lot of seats at the table then. Yeah. Yeah, and the Crown Prince uh, MBS as sort of the turkey behind it. Um, as many of you know, you know, Mohammed bin Salman was sort of made defense minister uh, in 2015 um, after the death of Kim, King Abdullah. Um, and then he became uh, the crown prince uh, in 2017. And, you know, I mean, he's got a whole bunch of crap uh, that he's done, including killing a journalist, which he's now, I think, fully admitted to and still had no repercussions for. Um, he's also had this terrible war in Yemen that he's been pushing. But the icing on the cake is... This Saudi Aramco thing. When he first came in, he basically was like, we need to figure out how to diversify Saudi Arabia's economy and take Saudi uh, Aramco public so that we can take some of that money and um, diversify the economy. At the same time, they realized that the Saudis were burning their own oil at seven bucks a barrel to produce electricity for the kingdom and that they were going to build a hundred billion dollars or whatever of, of solar to be able to, you know, power the country on solar, almost none of which has been installed. Um, and then, and then, you know, that would make Saudi Aramco more valuable. Today, we learned that Saudi, they really need a $1.6 trillion valuation. No one would pay him that. So he's basically forcing wealthy people from the region to buy 1.5% of the company, and they're not going to get uh, do a roadshow globally. So why is this your choice? Of of all the stories, why is the failed or lagging bid for an IPO a problem? Because it's emblematic of the nadir of the oil industry, right? Like, I think when you think about, you know, the drone attacks on their refinery complex, the fact that Saudi Arabia has been in terminal decline in terms of its production from its largest fields as... Um, as predicted by Matt Simmons, his book, what is Twilight in the Desert from 2005, um, they basically ha- are experiencing peak oil in real time. And, and they're still not able to diversify their economy. They're so tied to oil that they can't just do the most simple thing. I mean, solar has like a one and a half year payback in Saudi Arabia because they could save the oil that they're selling to themselves at seven bucks a barrel and sell it on the open market at $55 a barrel. And they still can't get out of their own way to get solar or even high efficiency, you know, air conditioning built in the country. And, and you know, like basically just to be able to preserve his seat at the table at Davos He's forcing wealthy people to get this IPO done by the end of the year so he doesn't get disinvited. So what you're saying is that when it comes to failed IPOs, then Saudi Aramco is the we work of the oil industry. <laughs> I wouldn't say we work because that's more that's more a Silicon Valley like hype story. I would say Saudi Arabia is fast becoming the Kodak or 
you know, the sort of, you know, car company of your choice that's not, you know, transitioning to electric vehicles, right? They're basically, they have all this money. They're losing like $40 billion a year. They've got $500 billion left in the kitty. They're probably going to run out of money in 12 years. And Saudi Arabia is going to be a pauper nation, right? That's where this is headed. And, you know, and and they know it and everyone else knows it. And they're still going to be celebrated in Davos as being wealthy because, like, that's just how the world works right now. Okay, well, let me pull up a chair for our next guest at the table who is going to leave a lot of people starstruck, but who is going to have to answer a lot of questions at the table as well. And that person is Elon Musk. Um, you know, Elon has done some extraordinary things. I still really admire him for his audacity and for the amount of projects that he's taking on and for his ultimate vision. But he's done some really shady things. And I think some of the more shady things involve the acquisition of Solar City, which we've detailed on this podcast before. But there have been a lot of new details that have come out in recent weeks. These fantastic reporters at Bloomberg, uh, Dana Hull and Austin Carr, published, sorted through and published a bunch of um, information from these documents related to a deposition, which was related to a shareholder lawsuit over Tesla's acquisition of Solar City. And what they found was that when Elon was trying to convince shareholders about this acquisition of Solar City, he just flat out lied about the performance of the company, about what he was planning to do with the company. Almost every single thing that he claimed publicly, he knew privately, he admitted that it probably wasn't going to come true. And it was absolutely clearly a bailout for SolarCity. Now, we've known that for a while, but these documents, these admissions from Musk showed just how blatantly he was willing to lie to make this acquisition happen. Um, And obviously, like, he has a direct financial interest because his other companies, uh, particularly SpaceX, they owned bonds in SolarCity. So there was a, he had a direct financial interest in bailing out this company. And of course, later, he dismantled SolarCity. And one of the other important pieces of this story is that he claimed that they were going to build this solar roof tile, which was a way of convincing investors to to make the acquisition, to approve the acquisition. And they claimed to officials in New York State that they were going to start building out this massive factory that would be pumping out these solar roof tiles. And they didn't do it. And they still haven't done it. And, you know, uh, New York has written down its investment in Tesla's manufacturing. They didn't hire as many people as they said they were going to. So this has real direct consequences. Look, I am a big admirer of what Musk has done to move markets, to move companies and the industries that he operates in, to execute on a pretty extraordinary vision. But we have to hold people accountable, no matter who they are, for lying. And it's pretty clear that he lied continuously through this Solar City acquisition. I, I mean, I, I appreciate your point of view on that, Stephen. And I certainly have been uh, a detractor when when I when I thought I needed to be. I think in this case, it played out well for all parties. I think in the end, when when I talk to people within Tesla, what they'll tell me is that they'll say, the reason we bought SolarCity and what SolarCity is doing right now is, um, is connecting uh, Tesla chargers to people's houses that bought Teslas. That ultimately, 
Tesla was facing a major crisis when SolarCity was purchased, where they had a network of electricians to install these Tesla chargers, and they were all doing a terrible job. And they were having huge customer service issues. And these are people who bought a car that can't charge their car. And so part of the reason they bought SolarCity was they basically took the entire installer network and told them, you're now installing Tesla chargers. My sense is they got $25 billion worth of benefit out of that because you know their customers weren't as pissed off about it. I get the fact that he misled people, but I think it's different than um, maybe some of the other turkeys out there. Okay, now for that after-dinner cocktail, the aperitif, our free electrons. What are you mixing up? serving and drinking down for the end of the dinner, Catherine? Yeah, well, we didn't get dessert yet. And so I'm a big fan of Thanksgiving dessert. dessert. We go straight to the cocktails. Because, like, I don't even... (laughs) Okay, you can have dessert. (laughs) By the time I get to the end of dinner, I'm not going to have another drink. But I do have uh, not just one piece of pie, but two little slices, like a little slice of apple and a little slice of pumpkin. And so with that in mind, there were two things on Twitter that I wanted to bring attention to. One is Joe Daniel from Union of Concerned Scientists, and his Twitter handle is Climate Econ. And he did this whole tweet storm on his analysis on coal plants operating out of the market and what it does to everything else in the market, what it does to prices and what it does to customers and how it changes the way the grid operates. And it's really worth going and looking at that thread because he has lots of really good graphs that very clearly and visually demonstrate what happens when uh, coal operators do this and how damaging it is. Um, The other thing has been bringing me pure joy, even though I don't really have time to do it, which is Leah Stokes and Mary Heglar have this climate book club on Twitter where they have a book that they put out and then they set aside a certain time on Twitter to talk about it and have a Twitter discussion. And I just think that's such a brilliant idea uh, to bring people together around a, a topic. And in this case, like a book that they are reading. So I would point you all to both of those things on Twitter because I think they're good desserts. What better way to spend the holiday than nestled up on Twitter reading a tweet storm and reading a book as part of the Climate Book Club? Jigger, what are you serving up? I know you're not going with dessert. You're going straight for the cocktails. So what do you got? I'm going straight for the oxygen bar. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Um... So the German manufacturing giant ThyssenKrupp has completed a successful first-of-the-kind demonstration of running a steel furnace completely on hydrogen. And I just think that's so critical because it in this uh, exercise, it didn't actually convert the entire steel mill to hydrogen. They were able to co-fire hydrogen into the plant Um, when there was excess hydrogen production. And so, again, this is a place where you can see how excess solar and wind, which, you know, NREL, I guess this is another uh, chatter here. NREL came out with a a report this week that showed that that you could cost-effectively get to high penetrations of renewable energy, but you would have systematic curtailment of the renewable energy to be able to uh, handle that much on the grid. 
And now you actually have an ability to turn that curtailed power into hydrogen to co-fire into steel plants. So I think all the pieces are coming together to show how a high penetration clean energy grid um, can make financial sense. So you don't have a free electron, you have a free molecule. I have a molecule, and I think I'm feeling a little bit high right now from the oxygen (laughs) bar. Well, I'm going back to Twitter, too. I don't know if you all saw this response on Climate Twitter over the last week to a piece that Lisa Friedman of The New York Times wrote. Lisa Friedman is a fantastic journalist who worked at E&E for many years. She was an editor, I think, at Greenwire or maybe at Energy Wire, and uh, has been a reporter for The New York Times for some time. She's just fantastic. And she wrote this piece about uh, Bernie Sanders' climate plan and how a lot of experts are questioning how easily we can actually achieve what he's claiming. And so there was this whole debate on Twitter about whether she framed the story incorrectly, about why she quoted only white men. And Leah Stokes, who you just mentioned, Catherine, came out and said, actually, you know what? Lisa Friedman called me and I didn't comment for the story because I've been attacked so often for talking about these issues and, you know, raising any skepticism about you know, a Bernie Sanders climate plan that I just decided not to comment for the story. And that says a lot. And if you look at the gendered attacks on Lisa Friedman after she posted her story on Twitter, there were so many people from the Bernie camp who were just going after her. They were going for the throat. Um, A lot of folks who just called her a fossil fuel shill, they started dragging the names of the experts through the mud and claiming that they were fossil fossil fuel shills just for raising like some pretty standard questions about how easily we can transition the energy system to Bernie's vision of the world. So I just, you know, I know we just spent like an entire segment criticizing people and companies jokingly, but seriously, like let's have a moment here to really sit down, take a breath and understand that this stuff is so complex It's hard and it's frustrating. It's also urgent, but let's not let that urgency destroy the cause by engaging in these pointless firing squads and, you know, outright sexist attacks on people. Yeah, I have found, Stephen, um, I totally agree with you. And I have the luxury of just ignoring people on Twitter. So I just do not get into debates. I do not get into arguments with anybody. I just don't engage if someone comes at me. And I have the luxury of doing that. A lot of journalists don't, uh, but I completely agree with you. Spend more time with podcasts and less time with Twitter. Yeah, then you just yell into your own headphones. (laughs) Well, David Roberts, uh, you know, asked an innocent question on Twitter around whether people should start using LinkedIn. And as someone who's been continuously on LinkedIn for 14 years, I have to say it's a far better platform for sharing information, I think. (laughs) Well, my my wife took all social media off of her phone except for LinkedIn, and I'll just be sitting there, and then you know I'll have LinkedIn up, and all of a sudden like a message will pop up on my screen, and she's trying to share something with me through LinkedIn. Like you know, a lot of people share things through Twitter messaging or Facebook messaging, but my wife chooses LinkedIn to do her personal sharing with me, which I thought was quite humorous. I love it, old school. After the Deval Patrick Association, and now LinkedIn. Uh, your wife is like, is like, you know, gone up a hundred notches in my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is going to be it for our final episode before the Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S. We're going to be back the first week of December. If you want to comment on our discussion, agree, disagree, whatever, just as long as it's civil, find us there on Twitter. If you're looking for some more holiday listening, check out our deep decarbonization draft part two. 
now available on the interchange it's our fantasy sports for energy and climate enthusiasts that episode got a lot of great responses last time and so we brought it back with some revamped rules Catherine hamilton and jigger shaw are my co-hosts the show is a co-production of postscript audio and green tech media it is produced and edited by me and daniel waldorf our theme music is from chad crouch thanks for listening we'll be back with you soon